1: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Chris Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast, Mr. Brandon Thurston Howard. How are you today, Brandon? Why, Why do you always laugh when I refer to you that way?
3: You're saying it in the wrong order. We went through this God last it. time.
2: I know, it's so it's so tempting, because I want to spell the word the, so T-H, yeah. but it's H-T, and I can't think of any word that ends
3: H-T. Uh, Br- Brandon Howard is what anybody who's listening to this knows me as. So.
2: Yeah. I'm so, fine, Brandon. I'm fine,
3: and uh, i this is like the weekly uh, Where's Brandon Wrestling This Weekend update. I'm wrestling uh, on, we're, we're recording this on Thursday, and I'm wrestling on Friday in Brockport, New York. For IWF, I'll be wrestling your former tag team partner, Mark House, formerly known as Mark Krieger.
2: Nice. And uh, were you successful in the last two weeks here in any of your wrestling matches?
3: Yes, I beat Vince Valor, which we talked about last time, and, and I beat Asylum at ESW in North Annaman, New York, right near my home.
2: What are we using to lubricate the pipes today? What is our, our drink of choice?
3: You can tell I'm drinking something. It's just, just coffee um, to keep myself
2: alert. <laughs> it's it's 7:30 at night and you're you're drinking coffee.
3: Yeah, but I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to talk for like the next. We're probably gonna talk for two and a half three hours here.
2: Oh my goodness, yes. We did do some regressions for those of you out there who wonder what does what does Mookie do all day. And uh, I I ran some regressions on the length of the show, the number of episodes we've had, and I've come up with an estimate of how many listeners we're gonna have based on those statistics. And uh, our our initial stats found that we lose people per episode. But we gain them if we just go longer. Right. So as long as we're willing to, you know, just kind of WWE this thing. By so taking e- the each episode front.
3: from here on out will be longer and longer and longer. Is that right?
2: Well, my idea would be we record the same amount of content. We just slow it down indiscernibly.
3: Oh. Well, am the editor so now, so I can, I can get on that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that will work well. And uh, of course, that new theme music. I'm loving it. Uh very glad you chose that. Yeah. And uh, we we are talking WrestleNomics Radio here, the only podcast that talks about the business of professional wrestling. Something that we've been told by many people uh, they do not believe can actually fill a couple hours. And something that some people have said, I wish there was more of, but with just Brandon talking about wrestling and wrestling philosophy. <laughs> this week's uh, big learn. So do you really have a degree in philosophy? I do,
3: from the University of Buffalo. <laughs> I do. That's what I went to school for. Um, and
2: is that similar to a classics degree at, at University of Buffalo? Would you really say it's a, strictly a, a philosophy degree?
3: Um, I went to very well. I went to a community college for a long time before I went to UB, and so I had a lot of classes coming in. I, but the, almost all the classes I ended up taking at UB were philosophy classes. Oh, and this is a good story. I haven't meaning to tell this story. So most of the classes I took once I actually got to a, a, like a bona fide university um, were philosophy classes, which was my major. And then I, one, I took a Spanish class as well. that I didn't do that well. in. And then I also took, a, a, you had to take a statistics class. And let me tell you, I didn't do well at that at all. Um, so and here I am doing you know, Excel spreadsheets with you here, and, and no wonder I can't keep up. But, but what, well, re- what really happened there, though, was uh, I thought the exam was at like 10 o'clock, and then I sh- but it was really at 8 o'clock, and I showed up at 10 o'clock with like 10 minutes to do, to do the exam, and it didn't go so well for me
2: taking random guesses
3: on the scantron
2: (laughs) oh my god i i had a similar statistics example where i um, was taking two classes that were like um the precursor to the other class Hmm. because i felt pretty good about it but i needed these economics classes and so they were like econometric model things and so it was kind of like the second level and the first level i took them at the same time so i would go to the second level class which was first and then the first level class was right after it. And so it was kind of like – it was redundant to take the advanced one and then sit there and take the, the easy one afterwards. Yeah. So I would just usually leave for the second class, which was fine except for the day where someone came up to me and was like, hey, I didn't see you at the test. And I was like, oh, no. Were you not and supposed I, to be doing I, that? I, yeah. So I just literally left right between the two classes and didn't take my test. For the more advanced one, or for the easier one, and so I had to then try to to give a sob story to the teacher to convince him to uh, have pity on me and just count my final grade for like the one class for both classes. Hmm. So it, it worked out well, but uh, I, it, that was the class, in fact, where I wrote the the PWI 500 uh, econometric prediction model. Oh wow! Which uh, yeah, did not did not mean anything, but it was it was something I did that was fun. So. It, it's it's good, good for interviews.
3: <laughs> the PWI 500 is being. Uh... I think the work is being started.
2: Uh, You know, when when, uh, Luke Harper, Brody Lee, was first breaking into wrestling, we set as him a giant goal to get him on the PWI 500. And, like, it was this whole thing where we talked about, like, how can we put together press packs and who do we have to influence to get this done? (laughs) So there was a time when that was considered, like, the coolest thing you could possibly do in the 2000s, so... Yeah. Uh, all love to PWI 500. Yeah.
3: Oscar for number one.
2: <laughs> so, you know, I feel like every episode, I would enjoy just talking about anything but wrestling, except for when we actually start talking about wrestling. Obviously, we get pretty passionate because last last time I didn't think the show would go even 30 minutes, and we went two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. So uh, I can't tell if it's because we banter more and more each episode or because we actually have better insights uh what what is it that you have been taking away right now we're we're kind of in the lull because this is the end of q2 fiscally for wwe so we don't get results for another month here um obviously there's been a lot of new japan stuff but that's this weekend so it's kind of you know by the time people hear this it will almost be over uh what what is it that's going on in wrestling business world in your mind right now
3: well we just had the the 10 years 10 years since the christian law double murder suicide and I, I ended up writing something about that for Fightful. Uh, there's a good article by Bix as well, uh, looking back on, on the, the ten years since and what's changed and what hasn't. Um, but a question that that I had, and we we put together some some data here, was was there really a business, uh, you know, a negative effect after you know he died and all the bad press that went with it?
2: Um, well, let's let's start off just at a personal point of view here yeah. for you. Was there a positive, negative, or indifferent effect for you of your interest level in wrestling uh, it, as those events transpired?
3: It was definitely a, a negative effect for me. I was a, there, there's like a big gap for me as, as far as like really watching wrestling. I guess the my, my, the, at the point that I became a wrestler in 2003, I kind of stopped watching as much wrestling from as many places as I used to. Like when I was a teenager in the early 2000s and late 90s. I watched a lot of wrestling, and I got to getting tapes and stuff. And about 2003 2004, that started to to level off. And I watched, I followed Japanese wrestling less closely going into the mid 2000s. But anyway, when when Chris Benoit died in 2007, I was going with somebody to to go train somewhere, and on on the Tuesday we had made a plan to go train there, Um, and we, uh, because we've been talking over the weekend, and so Monday you find out. Chris Benoit and his family are dead, and then Tuesday you find out that Chris Benoit you know, killed his family and then himself. And uh, so I called my friend up, who like idolized Benoit. I mean, like down to the, he copied a lot of what he did in the ring. Um, He's you know he, he who's his favorite wrestler. I, you know, I, I called him up, and said you still want to go train like we planned on, and he said yeah, and we went. And, uh, and we went to, to the school that we were going to train at. And one of the first things that happened when we got out of the car is uh, somebody walks up to us and like says hey. And basically, without saying steroids, offered us the steroids, and uh, I felt like, well, well, nothing's definitely nothing's going to change now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's oh,
2: Western New York, <laughs> hotbed of drug use, uh, opiate addiction, and steroids. Ample, ample steroids. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that is quite the
3: story. <laughs> and so that's June, and by, and and then, then we had a show. Uh, in the area that and, you know, everybody has to have a, a name for their show, right? And the name of this show was Juiced, which I think was a steroid reference. And I was just like, you know, and I don't know. And uh, things for me as a wrestler probably weren't going that great in general, and this didn't help. And I just, and I basically decided I was wasn't going to wrestle, and I joined my my college's wrestling team for the season. I basically didn't wrestle for like seven months. So, but I got back into wow. it, and here I am now.
2: Wow, that is that is quite a a transfiction, a, a transformative. Yeah. moment there that's yeah. that's pretty interesting yeah. I I don't have anything nearly that a uh, stark except for to say I moved to Minnesota in 2006 mid about August and so I got married and I moved out here and it was you know I it's r- big difference because I, I didn't really know that many people out here and you know was starting a new job and I was for the first time really cut off from all the wrestling scene because all the people here in Minnesota were totally different than the people in, in New York. And so I didn't have any in. And so you, pretty not, much not as much of a drug had. culture, huh? <laughs> but all I had, was like, you know, like I did a podcast at the time. In fact, the, the second episode of the very first podcast I did indeed wrestling weekly, which was hardly uh, wrestling, uh, we, I'm sorry, hardly weekly was in fact, right after Eddie Guerrero died. Mm. And so I always kind of thought about that as like, Oh, this was you know a really transformative thing because I was a big Eddie Guerrero fan, and then the then the Benoit thing happened. And I remember I called some guys in New York and was telling them, you know, hey, this happened, and then it came out really clear what what really had happened. And it was interesting because I, I know I even wrote a few pieces at the time uh, because even back then I was I was still kind of a burgeoning blog writer, and occasionally then you know people would. Would quote things that I wrote, and I remember I wrote one all about like madness and the madness of Chris Benoit at the time. But uh, it was it was yeah, it really kind of soured me on wrestling for a while there. And I remember I went to my friend's wedding a few months later, and I, it was just kind of like there where I was sitting there, and I think I was turned on. I was sitting in the hotel, and I turned on like one of these Nancy Grace shows. And I, I don't even think it was one of these weeks where like Alvarez or Meltzer was on, but rather it was like you know one of the weeks where it was just crazy talk and you know a Mark Marrow or someone was was talking on it. And I just
3: because at the time like this was a this was not an issue that like Nancy Grace and other shows put down. Like this is the daily they were bringing this up and following the story.
2: Yeah, and and it would be crazy, you know, compared to like legitimate <laughs> sources, it was a lot of just kind of rumors and speculations. Yeah. And uh, I I just remember like. Talking to my wife or my friends and, and saying something about, like, you know, this really depressed me. And it was weird because it was one of these where it's like, I didn't know the guy. I didn't know his family. But I think just the whole being close to wrestling and caring about it and then seeing something like this happen and just being like, wow, what an awful place. What an awful business. What an awful event. And just kind of like, I do remember I was watching a whole lot less wrestling for a while there. And it did take me a long time before I got back into it. And I think something that, that Bix talks about a little bit with um, his article is just about how there were so many weird rumors that came out at the time of, of Benoit and his family's death. And so few of them were ever followed up on in a clear way. And it was never clear why these things were released. You know, did Daniel have Fragile X syndrome? Did he have needle marks on his arms? Right. Did they find the note? Did they not find the note Were their Bibles in a uh, a certain way, or were they just happened to be there? Right. Um, when I was doing
3: the research for for the article that I wrote, I guess the fragile X rumor starts as something that Jerry McDivitt heard a caller say um, on a, on a radio show, and like it, 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 I think maybe somebody looked into it, and the caller d- didn't actually know of the family, but but McDivitt like repeated this on on some other news outlet, and, and so people went with it.
2: I, and so I, I don't even remember if that was true. or was the DA who said it at one point or who it was. But, yeah, it was just – I think strange. the DA says
3: that there's track marks on Daniel's arms. Yeah. And, and there wasn't. So, so.
2: It, but it, 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 at a certain point it just kind of goes away because they say, well, we know who did it. We know how they died. And we know who, that it's over. And so they just kind of stop investigating this stuff. But then, you know, at one point, WWE gets, goes as far as they're starting to release, you know, the timeline of which text messages were received by who. And it was just a really weird time because, of course, uh, this was coming right in between when the, 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 the wellness policy had started already. Right. And so there was all the questions. And that was something I had followed very, very closely was all the wellness policy implementations. And uh, the later the Sports Legacy, not the Sports Legacy Institute, but the um, <laughs> the other, the H D H Center in yeah, Florida that got yeah. busted and yeah. all those other ones, the yeah. anti-aging stuff. And so I was following a lot of that stuff. And, and in some ways, that's what made me more interested in the business of wrestling more than the stories of wrestling, where I realized, oh, my God, a good story about the business of wrestling transcends the story of wrestling nine times out of ten. And uh, uh, the problem is it is tough to sometimes come up smelling like roses when you when you spend a lot of time looking at all this. And then, you know, of course, it ended up... The one piece I think a lot of people forget is that um, Benoit's doctor ends up going to jail over all of this because uh, all the prescriptions... was writing Yeah, and so it's, it's just fascinating in, in that way. But at the time, I think it had a real negative effect, personally, on me, on my interest in wrestling. And so the, the reason we started this conversation was your question of, did Benoit's double murder-suicide affect WWE business? And can you talk a little bit about what you were using as your timeframes to, to kind of calculate this and what were some of your initial conclusions?
3: Right. So I, what I put in the top of the spreadsheet that we used to start looking at this is it's sort of a hypothesis in that the deaths occurred and the news about the deaths uh, was reported at the pretty close to the end of June. I think the 25th or the 26th is the day that we start to find out what happened. Um, so the way that W's fiscal year breaks down is that's, that's right at the end of Q2. So you would think if, if there were going to be negative effects, we would see those pretty plainly in Q3 because Q3 starts right after all that news starts to come out. Um, so I, I took a look at 2000, the 2007 Q3, and that's the, again, that's the year that the, you know, that the incidents happened. And then I compared this to the 2006 Q3 and the 2008 Q3, that is the quarter year before and after and just looked at all the revenue streams for WWE, which they report publicly and reported publicly at the time. And none of them, at least when you just look at the revenue streams, and we we looked further, but when you just look at the revenue streams, uh, except for home video, which really took a dip in Q3 2007, none of the others looked like they suffered that badly,
2: and in fact, a lot of them increased. Yeah, I mean, if we think about the major streams, uh, though, pay-per-view, that one is a little hard to judge because that was still in a variable time where, you know, good events would lead to one thing and bad events could lead to another. But you're right, it's down a little bit from 2006. It's still higher than 2008. Uh, TV rights obviously should have very little impact because that was more at the point where we're getting to the guaranteed money deals, Um or at least the deals where the money is, is very little of it is, is related to the, the ratings. And so TV advertising... Um, was almost on its way out, was mostly international by that point. Licensing, I would would expect to have zero effect, especially one quarter later, because those kind of deals get put in place far in advance. Home video, like you mentioned, is way down. It was almost half of what it was uh, the year before. I think this was one of the times when they were switching home home video vendors, Um, maybe switching to the company that later became Vivendi. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know if that one is at anything to do with actual home video releases because they had a monster Q4 that year, so I don't think it's related to that. Magazines publishing was up, so uh, at the time they were investing, WWE.com revenue was actually up, and then other revenue was the same as it always was. And then live events and venue merchandise, the two places that you'd probably expect to see the most pertinent impact, where um, it was up from 2006, it was flat to 2008, And uh, venue merchandise was basically the same number all three years. So you're right in the sense that there doesn't seem to be a big uh, uh, financial impact. I'm not surprised, though, because I I just don't see enough levers that could be immediately pulled that would happen. And, of course, at the same time, and this can always confound things, is WWE is never doing one thing. They're always, you know, doing two or three different things. So if I'm not mistaken, this should also be near the time that the ECW rollout was going on and other things were happening in the marketplace. Yeah, of course it was ECW rollout. He was going to win the ECW title. Right. Um, and Punk did instead, yeah. yeah. So I, I just mean this was when they were running ECW house shows and they were doing very, very poorly. And so, you know, when you look at the, num- the financial numbers for the time, WWE then later goes back and scrubs all their data to take ECW out to basically try to ignore it. It was kind of similar to what they're doing with NXT sometimes. Uh, and so – There are a lot of little things going on. So when I say live events were up or down, it's hard to say because they were running a different strategy that year than some other years in addition. But there's nothing that is blaring on a financial standpoint. Now, what I challenged you with is I said, well, let's look at TV ratings. Let's look at pay-per-view buys. Let's look at WWE.com traffic. Let's look at online traffic. And I do think that you do see some interesting trends with that.
3: Yeah, we we see that. The average rating for Raw in, in, in the quarter that followed the Van uh the average Raw rating was down to 3.47 compared to 3.76 in the quarter before that. Um, you got to ask, well, is, is Q3 usually a quarter that's down from prior quarters? And it is a little, usually it, it is a little bit down from Q2, because Q2 is going to be the quarter that's got the January, February, March, and all the, the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania build up. So I think it's to be expected that it would be down a little bit so you look at 2006 it went down in, in q2 from 4.08 to 3.79 so i think about it's, eight about
2: eight you percent know. yeah but an eight percent drop on uh 3.7 yeah so it's about the same percent droppage because uh, 376 to 347 is about an eight percent drop as well so it is similar in that case you you can always argue an absolute people, you, you start to see this attrition year over year over year, where by Q4, the lowest quarter of the year, you know, it's 3.61 in 2006. By 2007, it's 3.31. By 2008, it's 3.09. And so every year, that lowest quarter is even lower than it was the year before. And, you know, did the Benoit tragedy contribute to people continuing to tune out? Uh, probably. Did it, did it in any way you know, show that it was drastically different than other years. No, not as much. But, I I mean, I will say I've talked to other people who tell me, yeah, that's kind of when I stopped watching wrestling for a while. I I was really not interested in it. But maybe the product at the same time was also not as inspired to them.
3: Yeah, I mean, if anything's going to drive people off, I mean, what else is going to drive people off other than basically the worst news story in, in the history of wrestling?
2: Now, from a live event attendance standpoint, though, there is a little bit of a different story here, where in Q2 of, of 06, they were at 5,800 people, and a quarter later, they're at 5,500 people. In Q2 of 07, the year we're talking about, they were at 6,900 people, and the next quarter, they were down to 5,500 people, and this is without ECW even being included in the numbers. Um, in, in the next year, they went from 6,900 down to 5,300, so again, you saw a, a a very large decrease in the q3 of 2007 um we do also see a very healthy comeback in q4 at 7100 so it's an interesting paradox where you could say yeah there might actually be been a little bit of a live event dip at the time and doing things like running ecw shows help kind of bolster a little bit of that that live event number for q3 but at the same time uh you know, they, they didn't have great attendance at the time, and they had to take some moves, and they probably changed their pricing on tickets. I, I forgot to look at the ticket price uh, kind of quarter over quarter. But a lot of times when, you know, they're not selling out and they're struggling with that, they do begin to kind of leverage that ticket price.
3: I, I wonder if – is Q3 usually a, a week or usually the weakest quarter for average attendance? Because those are the summer months. And I know at least well, at least here like the, in indie wrestling we always think, well – don't don't run so much in June, July, August because you know that's those are the months when people want to be outdoors and don't want to you know see indoor entertainment.
2: Sort of, but they're also the months that they they heavily leverage a European tour. So right. but, know, the, we're the only US...
3: looking at at North American attendance here. Yeah.
2: Exactly, but I just say that's why they make their money there. Is then they say okay, we're gonna we're gonna focus on something else, yeah. and uh, it, it becomes a self perpetuating prophecy at a certain point. Yeah. I run a business where I have to book 52 weeks a year. So I, I have a weekly show. i got to fill that room every day, every week, and it's tough. And the summer months are the months that are the worst for us, yeah. and everybody says the same thing. But I always use the wrestling analogy of people don't come because they don't want to come. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, you know it, it, it up, I don't off. Yeah, just because it's the, the thing where people tell me it's raining, that's why they're not here, it's yeah. snowing, that's why it's not here. You know, sometimes one of our best weekends, Thanksgiving weekend. You know why? People want to get away from their families. Right. And so it's 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 like
0: or, or i find
3: like the, around holidays too you've got family in town just as much as the potential customers themselves are out of town maybe they've got somebody in town and now they bring And it. they
2: want something to do yeah exactly yeah. i get that as well but i mean every week of the year has some excuse that you can use as a positive or a negative that's right and a lot of times it just comes down to planning 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 and so you know that's that's the good news the bad news about it uh but yes q3 is not a great month for them I think that it's a lull season and, and you are right that it's tough to uh uh kind of drive attention. When we look at WWE dot com activity in millions of views and visitors, what was interesting to me is that you see a decrease on two thousand three or two thousand seven Q three for both WWE dot com for page views, for video streams, everything it was the the, the uh the transact there was the point when everything changed for WWE.com. So it was a bad digital time for them, and it happened to coincide exactly with when the uh, events happened. So I, I wonder about that in terms of was there a decrease in interest to, to watch WWE.com and to go to the website and the video service because after peaking in Q2 of 2007, which I think was – was that the year of Trump and uh, the hair versus hair match? That would be, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So after you know basically their biggest pay-per-view they ever did, uh, it's not surprising it went down, but then the fact it just continues to go down for the next six quarters after six quarters of growth, it is an interesting inflection point in considering how much weight people put in today and Google Trends and search results and everything else. To me, if you know, you're asking me this, what's a measure of interest, and uh, you're saying Google Trends are a good measure of interest, well, WWE.com page views seems like a decent measure of interest in 2007. And it took a deep, steep decline in 2007.
3: Yeah. And, and if anything else you would expect, because as time is going on here, well, people haven't got smartphones quite yet, not, not many people do, and, but, but still people are getting more and more familiar with the internet and probably using it more and more, so you would think if anything this, uh, there should be a bias that helps, helps these numbers increase and instead they're slightly and gradually declining.
2: Yeah, so, uh, you know, your question was, did it affect the business? Obviously, it affected the business as a whole. It affected WWE as a culture. I don't think it financially impacted WWE in a serious way, except for to say that it gave them a very bad reputation, which no doubt did not help their burgeoning uh, uh, ability to improve their TV rights deal by a lot at the time, mm-hmm. because it was a lot of bad press. Uh and I think it changed a lot of their, you know, there was all these kind of like little mini relationships that they were trying to foster at the time, you know, with with these business channels and business things. And I think it it, it really put them in a tough position when uh, they had to kind of go on the offense with it all. And uh, it, it certainly raised a lot of uh, a lot of eyebrows. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I I hear
3: people sometimes say, you know, well, it was the, the one thing that almost killed the business. And well, it, well, it didn't come anywhere near killing. WWE's business or the pro wrestling industry as a whole, it still was, you know, a terrible scandal that probably hurt wrestling's ability to get valuable sponsors and things like that.
2: It did almost kill the business in the sense that it opened up the trials, the, the discussions uh, and from Congress, and the fact that they started getting investigated by the government, again, uh, for steroid abuse and for other, you know, wellness policy violations. And had that actually gone to fruition and become a big deal, that could have been very, very bad for WWE and for wrestling.
3: What could that have unraveled into?
2: Well, you know, that's a little bit like saying what could have one of these lawsuits, if they lose, turn into? Well, the government is a much bigger stick than the uh, than than a lawsuit and a judge in, in Connecticut in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And so, I think just the, the scrutiny it could have had, and the uh, you know the the questions about you know actual testing going on, you know, almost like a USADA-type environment. Uh, The questions about the fines...
3: Those aren't, well, I don't think maybe you're going to mention something else, but, like, putting uh, big regulations on on WWE to make them do more, like, USADA-like testing isn't going to kill their business.
2: Probably not, but, I mean, at the time, you know, it was pretty clear, especially because we we still had some steroid scandals to come about how many guys were bulked up. And, you know, we, we have the CTE thing now to say, you know, that's being used in the CTE legisla- uh, uh, litigation right now is the testimony from that House thing. You know, it was putting people in a lot of tough situations because it opened up a lot of the old wounds where people were saying, well, what exactly happened with this Ring Boy scandal? What exactly happened with this Dr. Zahorian? What exactly happens with this TNA testing policy and so forth? And so – uh I, I think it was just one of these cases where they did not want to be uh at the whims of regulators. And I'm not enough of a government expert to say what they would have passed. I think, you know, the worst of all would be if they ended up with some kind of um, you know, ALI Act type legislation that went in or some kind of review of independent contractor status.
3: What what was the ALI Act do for those of us who don't know?
2: Uh it's it's the boxing legislation that a lot of the uh, MMA community is kind of nervous that will be implemented under their kind of over, overarching – it's hard to even get into all the way. There's a great show with John McCarthy and some people talking about it like a legislator, and he gives his view of why it's a good thing, and then you'll hear a lot of other MMA pundits say it's a terrible thing. And it has a lot to do with this kind of the idea of, of legislating boxing and – Giving the rights back to certain people, but at the same time, it's it's a it's highly questionable whether any of it can be done fairly. Uh, I'm I'm being very inarticulate and exact here because I was not expecting you to call me out. On that. <laughs> but I would, I, I, would I would advise people to to look up the the Ollie Act and you can see a lot of the debate that's happening in boxing and MMA about whether or not it's actually going to improve the sport at all. But it is a form of legislation that was passed. Uh, that basically dealt with a single sport, so you you could see something like that that could really be have a, a watershed or a pretty pretty explosive moment on it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so that that's rest, and then I think the last piece we should probably mention is pay per view buys, and uh, I looked it up. The pay per views cost the same all three years, so okay. 06, 07, 08, same price. And as you point out, there's about a thousand eighty buys in Q3 of 06 there's about 980 buys in 2007 and there's about 933 buys in 2008 in the third quarter so very similar numbers not in yeah. by any means drastic drastic and again I think it's more about the fact that this was still the era where different pay-per-views with different attractions drew differently right moving on what else uh, so Mauro Ronaldo is back in NXT are you surprised
3: um, I was I wasn't expecting that, and I think I was expecting him to show up on New Japan uh, in in August or September. Is it? What's going through Triple H's mind uh, when he does this? Is he is he genuine? Does he is he just playing the internet and trying to babyface the internet? Is he genuinely trying to undermine Vince in any way in any corner of his mind? I don't know.
2: I never thought that Mauro Ronaldo would be hired to work for WWE in the modern environment.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I didn't really expect that either. And, you know, what everybody says is, well, he's the guy who who called the Mayweather and Pacquiao fight, so he's a big deal.
2: Yeah, and so just the fact that they decided to go ahead and put him on SmackDown, you know, not even just relegate him to some kind of minuscule role. And not have him be exclusive either. Yeah, it said a lot about kind of their interest in him at the time. And I think it's a good example of, there's so many different people that, that move in these these areas that you know maybe to them, having Amaro Inalo and being able to say, this is the same guy who's calling this fight and calls this sport and does this sport, they think of as a huge positive because then when you know they push that ESPN credibility card, they can say, well, you have your same legitimate commentator on our show as you do on your sports event, so of course we're a big deal. Um, and so there's that. There's the fact that you know, just the fact that he got hired and he was lasting there for a while said a lot about they must have an interest in him. And so once once you break down that barrier, never say never. You know, there's so many guys, Goldberg and Bret Hart and the list goes Ultimate Warrior and Bruno Sammartino, where The list goes on and on of people that you would just say there's no way they're going to make peace with this person. And they go ahead and they do it. And in many of those cases, Triple H has played a role. Uh, I have to believe there's other people besides Triple H and Vince and Kevin Dunn who make some of these decisions. You know, there is other talent and other other kind of people that help them kind of make good decisions. And part of it also being the lawyers who just saying, you know, the best way for us to smooth this over is not to end up with a situation where this guy disappears off television, uh, uh, appears to have a breakdown and then uh, never works for you again. You know, instead we can we can class it up and pretend like this is you know a big win for all involved. Right. You want to keep him in house so that he's not out there and free to say whatever he wants
3: with no consequence within the company.
2: Perhaps. I mean, I I honestly think a guy like Morrow is probably more interested in moving on and continuing his career. And so, you yeah, know, but like, but I mean, it, even it
3: eliminates the chance he's going to do an interview at some point and it's going to come up.
2: But for now, I mean, every WWE writer, even those that like WWE when they were working there still has, you know, their love-hate relationship with it. And I think even a lot of them who, who talk a lot of trash still would go back. So, you know, it's it's just that type of business. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's impressive. I'm glad that, you know, they found a, a situation that works for him. Uh, he, as an announcer, he's a guy. He doesn't, he doesn't ex- you know, blow my mind anymore the way that I think, you know, I thought it was going to be having him on the show. It, it, he never really lived up to kind of the hype of what I was hoping it would be. And so at a certain point, I think I just accepted that this is the Morrow that is here, and that's fine for what it is. Uh, he's, just, he's not my favorite announcer, but he's also not my least favorite announcer. He's just a guy to me.
3: I, th- I thought he was great in the Cruiserweight Classic with Daniel Bryan, and I think when you get to SmackDown, things get WWE'd up more, and, and that sanitizes and subdues everybody, I think. But do you think he's getting paid? He's, so he's got a new contract, we read. He's got a two-year contract, I believe, and that supersedes the other contract, the original contract that was going to expire in in August. So do you think he's getting paid more money, uh, let's say, per year than he was to do SmackDown before?
2: No, Uh, but I think they're they're giving him more free weekends. So it's probably a a win-win. Yeah, Yeah. I've heard a lot of people
3: speculate that, oh, he's probably getting paid more because it's sort of like shut-up money. Um, But I I would think just because there's fewer dates – and it's the lower-profile brand, and this contract was going to expire in August anyway, so it's just another booking for him.
2: You know, I, I kind of look at it, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I kind of look at it a little bit like Darren Young. So when Darren Young came out and said he was an openly gay wrestler, a lot of people said, you know what, WWE is not going to fire this guy <laughs> for some period of time. And I'm not saying that has anything to do with why he said that, because I, I imagine it was very much on his own terms and his own reasons he came to that came to that announcement. But at the same time, I think WWE knows enough to say, we cannot fire the only openly gay wrestler we have on our roster a month from now when we're doing budget cuts. That's going to look really, really bad, and it's going to put a big spotlight on us. And in some ways, I kind of feel like that's the same with Morrow, which is, Even if Morrow pisses everybody off, they'll just quietly put him on the books and say, you know what, we don't need you to come in this week for the next two years. I don't think this is going to be one of these where they're going to uh, release him in a round of budget cuts. Uh, You know, I think they've budgeted for him. And in terms of settlement money, I don't think that this includes settlement money. I think the settlement money was already done. And so in some ways, this is a true honest-to-God contract for two years at probably a, a decent market rate. And if I was Mauro and I'm getting older and older and there's all these other people that are out there, I think it's great for me. You know, the, the fact that it's, it's – that I would have a guaranteed contract for about two years here.
3: Yeah, We're all getting older and older. We're, yes. we're middle-aged, as he pointed out last time.
2: Well, you know, there's a – they might be a giant song called uh, Older that, that would be perfect to play at
3: this point. There you go. Who, who knows? Maybe it will maybe it'll slip in and post you're older than you've ever been and now you're even older and now you're older still do you want to talk about unions
2: how do i uh you know somebody just asked the other day what would it take for wwe uh for wrestlers to unionize and it it is interesting in the question of like you know this has been talked about for years and years and of course there's tons of uh, you know, old, old books going all the way back to, you know, Chokehold and other things where they talk about Jim Wilson, ta- I think, is, is the author of that one, talking yeah. about his views on, on uh, uh, unions and whatnot. And I'm, I'm just trying to kind of pull up my thoughts here that I wrote on the board at one point about what it would take for unions. And basically, I think a lot of it would be there has to be a significant change in the status of being an independent contractor that would be a problem for WWE. Because right now, basically, uh, there is not a court that has said independent contractor status the way WWE enforces it is illegal. There have been people that have tried to challenge it. When M- Mike Sanders and uh, Raven and Chris Canyon challenged it, they basically were said the statute of limitations has gone out on your contract. You cannot challenge it. And there's been elements of it in both the CTE lawsuit and in the royalties lawsuit, but there hasn't been a really great case where someone said, here's my current contract. I am putting it up here. I think it is illegal because this, this, and this. And examples they've given in the past, is they said, like uh, the dress code on airplanes. If your employer can tell you how you dress in your free time, are, they really, are you really an independent contractor? Or are they your employer? Are they someone who has some other right on your ability on your free time? And so they were, they were submitting examples of the policy that WWE had told people, you know, you have to dress this way if you're going to be in an airport or on an airplane. So first, you would need someone to successfully challenge the independent contractor status. And that would be very hard to do in Connecticut where, the, where it has been challenged or where it's been discussed before because it's a very pro-employer state. But maybe there would be a state where they would be able to do that, or Is, is maybe that strategic
3: they would be, on WWE's part? Is that why their headquarters are, are in Connecticut and not New York or something?
2: Their headquarters are in Connecticut. Technically, I think they're a Delaware corporation. Um,
3: but is that just a name? Does that refer to the actual state of Delaware?
2: Uh, it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. it does. It, it, they're incorporated under the laws of Delaware. But they, okay. they, because their headquarters are in Connecticut, they, they get all the trials moved there. Uh, I think over the years here, they've definitely found it to be advantageous. And when you saw them fighting, you know, the, the California lawsuits uh, for the beginning of the CT lawsuits the Oregon lawsuit where Billy Billy Jack Haynes was doing, uh, uh, they definitely, in Texas, they moved it from uh, Kentucky for Viscera. You know, every court, they moved it from New Jersey for a big veto. They, They moved it from New York. They moved all these cases to Connecticut every time because they think that it's a much more favorable law system. Now, do I think 30 years ago they felt that way? I don't know. But they've definitely figured that out over the last 20 years here of all their lawsuits. And of course, there have been lawsuits in other courts. You know, the, the uh, drug lawsuit, I believe, was, was tried in New York, specifically. So it's not like the Geraldo lawsuit uh, was in New York. There's lots of lawsuits that were held in other places. So it's not like they've only done Connecticut before, but they have a- argued jur- jurisdiction quite strenuously since then. Geraldo so or, or, like, was, or Belzer? Uh, it was Geraldo, actually. Geraldo, uh, Geraldo uh, sued they, WVV? They no, they sued, w, they, they sued Geraldo over... Uh, uh, Claims, yeah, you know, I think it was from one of the Ring Voice scandal okay. shows that he did. Okay. Uh, say, basically, they, they sued the New York Post. They su- sued sued Mushnick. They sued lots of people around that time who who were speaking up and doing things. But yes, there was also the Belzer Post. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Belzer lawsuit. Uh,
3: Would so the, could union... could? I know you hear the story about I guess what Jesse Ventura was trying to unionize people in the eighties, and and Hogan went to went to Vince about it supposedly, as the story goes. It, I mean, I, I don't think so, but can, can anything like that happen today? Or
2: Well, I think the first one is you need a path to what you do after you quote-unquote unionize. So what exactly are you arguing? Because first of all, you sign these contracts, and once you sign the contract, you're kind of bound to this, the stipulations of the contract. It has what you get paid, what you get paid on, when you get paid, when they can release you, what you can do if you're released what you can't do, what are the clauses, you know, when can we test you, all these things. And so you have to in some ways kind of challenge that if you're going to unionize because in essence what you're trying to do is argue I need a different set of conditions, a different contract. Um, So I I think you would have to have a successful uh, challenge to the independent contractor thing. Second one is you have to figure out what are you going to do to create this union. And as many people have pointed out, probably the closest thing is SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, where you would say these are people who perform – they perform in the entertainment field. They perform and their, their likeness is shown on television. They receive compensation for acting in those likenesses. And then at the same time, they receive additional money because as it is shown again and again, they get some kind of residuals. And uh, we talked about residuals a couple of shows ago, but stuntmen are in this union and there's movie actors, there's television actors, there's, you know, even writers and things of that nature. That there, it's a very large guild. Uh, uh, there, And that would probably be the closest to saying, here's an established organization that people understand how to interact with that has an idea of what to do when your likeness is being shown on television and someone is profiting off of it. Mm-hmm. I think that is far more likely than, say, an NFL union or a you know, hockey union or a baseball union where you could argue athletes that are coming out. It's a very different set of circumstances because it is a pure sport environment even though it does have kind of these private owners of the teams. And so I see it very much more going in the direction of the Screen Actors Guild union than, say, a sports union. Um, It it would just be a big question about, you know, how would they negotiate that, who would lead that. And, yes, you're right. I do think you would need a top guy to lead it Uh, because, of course, there would be the alternative to say, what if we could get a retired wrestlers union and do this and that? And that would be all fine and dandy, but A, I just don't know what they would be able to accomplish because for the most part, WWE owns their IP, WWE owns their right to show their IP. And the contracts people signed have pretty much given away those rights or have left them in a situation like the WWE Network where they're arguing you're not buying something when you go to the WWE Network. You're buying a license to watch things. You're not buying a copy of the pay-per-view the way there was in the old days. And that's why it is not a direct sale. It is rather just a license for you to view content. And so
3: you're talking about the retired wrestlers, right?
2: Well, anyone, but especially retired wrestlers, because they have the older contracts that would actually have language in it that would possibly be um, silent on what exactly you do on an internet streamed video platform. And, like, do you think it would be a, a, a good thing or a bad thing? I think I remember
3: when Bret Hart was getting out of WCW or something, and maybe WCW had shut down, and him doing interviews and talking about the, you know, someone brought up the possibility of, of a union, and he said that he thought that a, a union probably in, in the end wouldn't be good for wrestling because the, the people who would lead the union would be people like Kevin Nash who would just use their power to
2: you know to do themselves favors and to not really help out the workers at large. I mean we have seen other places institute a union. There's a wrestler union in Mexico it, it doesn't it's not you know impossible. I think it gets into the question of, who is qualified to operate in these circumstances? You know, this might be this one situation where someone says, "I think Otunga is the best guy for the job," uh, but it, it's it, it's hard to say really at this point. It's so hypothetical. The question would be, what would be the net benefits to the wrestlers? And I think the net benefits to the wrestler would be the way it is in a, more like a sports union, in the sense that you could probably establish a minimum salary, you could probably establish a, uh, a more profit. Uh, sharing opportunities for them. And then at the same time, they'd be asked to somehow put some skin in the game themselves. And what exactly that would look like is hard to, um, that's hard to to comprehend. You know, would that be, it's more guarantees about what they're willing to give up at certain times in terms of the schedule. Is it more guarantees about um, the relationship they have with the promoters and the willingness to, you know, stay more committed essentially, you know, not go off to a, a different NFL or go off to MMA or something else? I, I don't know. I, I do think of it as a very far-off thing. Uh, before yeah. I moved to Minnesota, I never gave two thoughts about unions. And part of that is because New York is a very ununionized state these days compared to how it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. With the exception of some grocery store unions, there's not a lot of strong unions in New York. When you come to the Midwest, you actually run into a lot more unions. And so, like, my father-in-law is a, is a union electrician. And I've learned a lot about what it is to be a union electrician or a union plumber or a union this or union that. And it's, it's interesting because it gives you a different perspective on what they feel are the benefits. A lot of it goes back to schooling, if you really put it in perspective, where there's a lot of belief in, you know, we, we school these people, we put them into an apprentice mode and whatnot. And so there's that element of that which would be really interesting in wrestling. But at the same time, it's such an independent contractor thing. And when we think about what has television done in the past, you know, there's a reason reality stars, I don't believe, are in unions, because they figured out this is cheap programming. Game shows, this is cheap programming. And so in some ways, what you see sometimes is businesses switching their practices in such a way that they try to basically avoid getting involved when they feel that there's a large entanglement that is going to weigh them down if they want to maneuver in some way. Yeah.
3: So I think I think one of the things you, you see with WV is, and, and I think it, it comes from Vince McMahon, is the... The guys who really get rewarded and who are really appreciated in that company are guys who have demonstrated incredible loyalty to WWE. Um, that, that's John Cena. When you hear John Cena say things like, I don't love this business, I love WWE. So that he's so committed, he's such a company man. It's not about pro wrestling at large. And I take that as, in other words, he's not going to go help a competitor. He's all about WWE, whatever WWE is, John Cena is. And, um, and I think you look at the, the way the Undertaker has been like worshipped as, as, as this you know this like holy figure to WWE. He's the guy who stayed with WWE all the, through all these years. Um, but, so, but so I, I think, think that culture kind of it, it kind of sends the message that okay the guys who are, who are going to get the political power are the guys who have shown loyalty to me. And I'm not saying that happens in every case, but that's a factor.
2: Yeah, and and in some ways I think it's the bigger part of the union argument has less to do with your career during your active period, as much as it does about what would we do for a pension? What would we do for medical benefits? What would we do for scheduling people for time off and for injuries? And what would we do for a post-wrestling uh, career? Yeah. And those are the big question marks that are kind of left open today, which is you can, you can talk all you want, but what essentially I think a real union would have value is to say, here's what we can do for you after your life is over in, in the ring. And uh, also, here's what we would do to support you during your beginning period of your career. But the reality is it's tough when the richest guys are the ones that are the the most powerful because it's like they – They have the least incentive to do anything about it. Yeah, and and for the most part, I mean it's been discussed before about are wrestlers more Republican or Democrat? You meet a lot more kind of libertarian thinkers in the sense of saying – I'm an independent contractor and some really love it because it's that idea of saying I get to control my bills my pay my this and that and I myself I am the I'm my own boss and you, I, I have, at least in my period I've seen more people that lean to the right than to the left in the independent wrestler or the wrestler scene yeah. but and then I think
3: WWE uh, creates a, a call for their for their workers and it, it comes through on the, the TV too and it probably reflects the politics of the, of the guy who's writing the show is that everyone should grab the brass ring and you get the impression that everyone has the same opportunity. And When I watched Money in the Bank the other Sunday, I sat down and I, I took a tally of you know the common words that we hear over and over and over again in the, in the language of WWE. And one of the words that you hear over and over and over again is opportunity. They don't talk about title shots. They talk about championship opportunities. And it, it, it comes through to me like if, if Ann R- Rand was to book a wrestling promotion, it would look like modern WWE.
2: And and yeah, I think a lot of them it, it comes from that idea of you're you're carny workers. You know, the idea of you making a career of this is in itself a goof. Uh,
3: right. But and and this man came from a trailer park in North Carolina, so why why can't you become a billionaire too?
2: Yeah, and and I, I do think. I don't think it would happen in Vince McMahon's lifetime is what I've also said is that I could see a era where you basically say we're going to deal with all these problems. We have these CTE lawsuits. We're going to deal with pension problems. We're going to deal with bad press and injuries and this and that, but I just don't see that kind of seismic change coming during Vince McMahon's lifetime. And again, with the the changes coming in cord cutting is the way television and entertainment is scripted and distributed. You know, is a, is a Screen Actors Guild union going to have the same power it has? Or is it going to fade over time here? Because, you know, everyone's kind of on their own. It's like when you and I write articles, we are independent contractors who write articles. And we are incented not by the performance of that article as much as we are just by the payment we get up front for those. And I think we're seeing that more and more. This ties into something else I wanted to talk about today, which is just the, the long article that was over at Awful Announcing talking about uh, Fox Sports. And they're digital. Uh, did you get a chance to read that article? I did. I did my homework this week. Yeah, and so it, I thought it was fascinating because it was basically talking about how they, they went in and they gutted this digital d- division. But before that, they went as far as to say, what we want you to do is figure out ways to tie everything back to us as a brand and uh, divorce it from you as a writer. And so it's not about what do you think 10 great quarterbacks would be. It's about saying Terry Bradshaw mentioned they need a new quarterback. Terry Bradshaw's pick for 10 new quarterbacks. Right. They basically or, wanted
3: it to be all personality driven and to take all their website written content and to not make it about, to not have it just be out there without it being tied to one of their TV personalities like Terry Bradshaw or Colin Cowherd or Skip Bayless.
2: Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. And they even talked about, eventually, they basically said, we're going to get rid of it all. And we're going to go all digital, and it's going to be all video. And that's the future for us. And, of course, it always is tough to make a profit because you are fighting for eyeballs. And they were even saying they had to – the digital division had to pay for some of the MySpace uh, facility. Like, that's how ridiculous digital divisions get over time because everything gets lumped under them uh, as basically the catch-all. And then eventually, of course, it doesn't look profitable because you're putting anything and everything that's kind of new media there. But And And If you go to
3: foxsports.com right now, just by looking at the front page of it, it doesn't look like there's any articles here. It's just a bunch of play buttons and uh, thumbnails of of various videos.
2: And and when they say, where did all our traffic come from? They said, well, we actually had an agreement with MSN. And MSN, we were their preferred partner, and so, of course, we got all this thing. And we saw the same thing happen with Bleacher Report. I used to work for Bleacher Report and and write with them, and I didn't leave them because – I left them because I just wasn't interested in working in that environment anymore. But when they got the CNN boost, when Turner basically said, we're not going to – I think at the time they might have been linking to ESPN or something. But then they finally said, we're going to just do it in-house. We're going to do it ourselves. We own this brand. And they just suddenly made Bleacher Report big. And suddenly you could go to CNN and as a wrestling or an MMA article could be linked on the front page of CNN. But it's not like that author was getting paid – a ridiculous amount of money because they were on that front page. They were getting probably paid their normal rate of money, which was whatever they had negotiated for their per article amount. And you and I have talked about it before. Sometimes being a writer means you make a profit when the site doesn't. But at the same time, if the site blows up, you don't make any more money. And there's very few that are actually, you know, kind of per capita. And, and same thing with wrestling. It's, it's very much that same kind of business where you're saying, I'm going to get paid a certain amount and you can make as much as you want on tv rights and i get paid pretty much the same amount
3: yeah it's just like the, the publisher is taking a bet on you that you're going to help them either attract traffic or, or build a brand or whatever it
2: is or you know maybe it's just a long game they maybe they just want to be acquired you know <laughs> like you build a brand just to sell it off to somebody else you know sure. how many businesses are are built on the idea of saying i don't i just want someone else to say hey it's worth me to own this and then i'm done yeah. Uh, and you're, cash you're out. You're so building it's, value. Yeah. So it's, you know, as as an independent contractor writers, you experience this a lot where it's tough to say, what am I worth? And you figure that's just the same argument any wrestler is going to have because you're worth nothing if no one reads what you do.
3: Yeah. You are worth what the market bears and what you can get people to pay for you.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know what, what, what a, a WWE CT lawsuit transcript is worth?
3: 25 $25.
2: Twenty-five dollars. Oh, so it's like much. the answers are right in front of me. It's it, what's funny about it is it infuriates me so much that it almost motivates me to work, and yeah. I I went as far as to earn that. Desi- back. I she, did. You so just signed
3: George or Jerry an invoice for this.
2: <laughs> no, I sent a. Uh, I started working on this whole big project where I, I was going to take two thousand seven through two thousand and eleven. Is that five years? Yeah, I was going to do five years. And I was going to break down all the stats, and I was going to basically put out an ebook where I just broke down all the stats for each of the years, where I'd say, here's what the pay-per-views did, here's what the uh, who worked the most matches, who was televised the most, who was televised the least, who won the most matches, what was the average uh, house show attendance, and then just, you know, stat, 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 and just sell it for, like, $2 a piece, and then uh, uh, just put it out there and be like, all right, and this will pay for my transcript to buy it. And read a ACT transcript, mm-hmm. and so I started doing that, and so I spent like all week here working on that, and uh, it's so infuriating. It's just so, it's just so so, it's so boring, and at the same time interesting. It's hard to figure out what that balance is for layout and whatnot. So if you are interested in in a a one dollar or two dollar ebook, which is basically what I promised about seven years ago and never delivered on. Uh, that was, that was my idea this week was to pay for my transcript. So in some ways I, I, how
3: many of these are there? How many transcripts are there? Oh, is it like every, every time the court files something?
2: Uh, no, no. There's only a transcript whenever the lawyers are arguing in front of a judge. Okay. And most of these don't ever go to trial. So well, there's so, very, so how lawyers. often are they
3: arguing in front of a judge?
2: There's three of these transcripts that I can think of right now that I've not seen. Okay. Uh, in fact, one of them just was released yesterday. I, I forgot to go look to see how much it would cost. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just them arguing over sanctions. Why so does this cost quality. anything
3: anyway? If this is a public record and, and people should just have <laughs> access to it, why isn't it free?
2: Well, <laughs> the the people that recap the law would agree with you greatly. Uh, uh, the basic idea is that it costs money to serve a court. Right, a court needs to recoup its costs in some ways, and so what is a reasonable cost per page to charge? Now, in the fact that we live in a digital world now. <laughs> It is a little bit egregious that $0.10 cents a page. In an era when I was photocopying, I could understand that. But now it seems a little egregious that the court systems. That said, a lot of court systems are chronically underfunded, and so this is another way for them to make money to basically be in compliance with all the acts that say they have to digitize and make these records available. And so uh, in theory, I could probably do some kind of hardship argument, but I can't really argue hardship because uh, I am – Doing well enough right now to talk to you on my iPhone <laughs> on a wrestling podcast, yeah. as opposed to working another job right now or even finishing the said ebook I just imagined creating. Yes, yeah,
3: so you're doing well enough that so we can. Uh, your, your your computer is trying to boot up. Is it still trying to boot up, by the way? Or are we uh, done with the Windows update yet?
2: Uh, we'll have to check in a few minutes here. I'd have to go all the way downstairs. Yeah, I, okay. I, I, there's different rooms in my house I sequester myself in, oh. away from the dogs, yeah, okay. and so I can either be in the basement or in the bedroom. So I've chosen the bedroom today. One of two bedrooms. Again, no hardship here.
3: Hmm. Where I'm, do you I'm, talk? I'm broadcasting today from my, my basement apartment in North Carolina, which has one bedroom. And I'm sort of in the the kitchen is to my left. And I what w- w- probably in a normal home. They would make this the dining room. But it's just a, a, a relatively small space that's by the door and in between the door and the kitchen. And we're so, mm-hmm. if, so if you hear my refrigerator, uh, the man in my refrigerator pounding on the anvil again, uh, it's because I'm pretty close to the refrigerator.
2: That was going to be my question, was uh, how close are we to the refrigerator again this week. Uh, Let's talk uh, a Brandon subject here. Uh, New Japan has got this big show with Cody Rhodes. Cody Rhodes winning the ROH title, so we can talk either the ROH stuff you've been working on or we can talk New Japan or we can talk both. What are some of your thoughts about what's been going on there?
3: Well, I haven't been working on it so much as Lavi Margolin's been working on it. He came out with some research today uh, looking at Ring of Honor attendance for the first half of each year from the years 2012 to 2017. And uh, so this is stuff taken from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter and from the Internet Wrestling Database for the shows where the Wrestling Observer didn't report an an attendance. So if you look at it real quick, it just looks like attendance is going up and up and up uh, every year, uh, with the exception of 2013, which went down from 2012. But you really get a a big jump in 2015, where they go from about 13,000... Total attendees to about 22,000 total attendees, and it's slightly increased in 2016 and in 2017 to where the total attendance now is for the first half of this year is 24,000. Uh, the average attendance is, a, is a, that's the to, that's the highest ever been for total attendance, and the average attendance is the highest it's ever been over 1,000. 1,105 is the average. Um, at the end of 2015, I did a, a study on attendance for like all promotions, uh, including Ring of Honor, WWE. Um and I, I looked at attendance then I, I neglected to do that at the end of 2016 because I was kind of weary of the attendances that were being reported in the observer and kind of felt like maybe they're being exaggerated either either because ring of honor may be providing those attendances directly to the observer. I went to a, a ring of honor show uh, locally in Lockport and I f- maybe I'm being, maybe I'm biased, but I I, I looked at the the venue, which, which, by the way, I, a local indie that I work for has run often, and I figured there was about five or 600 uh, in the building. I reported that. I sent an email to, to the observer giving them that number, and they reported like 800. So and maybe they got it from somebody else who is more reliable. Or I, I don't know. But I, at least in that instance, I uh, was weary of the attendance. And I think there was a, the last ballpark show that they did in, uh, in Brooklyn, the attendance, based on pictures, look to be much lower than the number that was reported in the Observer Results section.
0: Yeah,
2: that's true. Um, I, I don't know what it is that is driving um, the numbers he, he reports. So it could be you – know, we it's clear he has a very close relationship with ROH, with uh, – And I, R- I wouldn't I'll dispute
1: – I would say Delirious
2: or, yeah. or someone else, Joe Kahn, or someone who is giving him direct information. So I would assume – you know, There is always every show a percentage of people that buy a ticket and then don't show up, and so it's possible that you're getting the actual ticket sold number for ROH when all other shows you're only getting how many people are in the arena. And, and by the
3: way, when I went to the Lockport show, people who had, who showed up in the middle of the show were just walking in, and like they had stopped trying to take tickets at that point. But anyway, but I, I wouldn't doubt the overall narrative of this story here that Ring of Honor attendance is increasing year over year for the last several years. But I, I question whether the attendances are as high as the numbers that we have, which are basically the only numbers that we have to go on because it's not like anybody else is reporting we Re- 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 have on our attendance except for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter for the most part.
2: And, and the other challenge you're going to have is um, profit loss. So definitely WD- uh, ROH is doing better. The question is, did the talent that they used in 2012 versus the talent that they used in 2017, You know, when you're booking the Young Bucks and you're booking New Japan wrestlers and you're booking uh, the Hardys and others there, and drawing these big houses, are they paying for themselves in terms of the extra uh, attendance there? Or, you know, is there such a difference between a Brent Albright and a Brother Nero that uh, we're talking about, you know, a logarithmic change in in what you're paying out? So I would also wonder about that myself. Yeah, so you're saying
3: even though the attendance is higher, does that necessarily mean that they're profiting more, that they're profiting at all, because the talent
2: is probably more expensive now than it was five years ago? Or, or is it even a fair comparison? You know, it's like comparing an indie to a super indie yeah. and saying which one is better. Because hey, if I'm going to spend ten times as much, you know, I would say, hey, I think they spent the right amount of money on the right people. Uh, I think they're doing the right things. But there's always going to be a difference between an indie with no stars and an indie that is is bringing in big names. The difference is, in the past, we've seen them bring in some of these names, and they haven't moved the the needle. You know, and so the fact that they're able to move the needle now does suggest that they are getting some uh, 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 momentum. I am I'm, I'm always torn on Cody. Do you think uh, he's the right guy? Is he you know he's successful? That's for sure. You know what other person was able to be in the biggest show of, of what was it? New Japan, TNA, ROH, and WWE all in the same year, something like that.
3: Well, he did a conference call. And he 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 basically implied that, or you could read it in this way, that he left a seven-figure situation in in WWE, and and then he remarks earlier in the call that uh, he's making more money being independent than he than he had in WWE. Now maybe he means that he, he walked away from a seven-figure situation where he, in WWE where he could have made seven figures if they had decided to you know put him in main events and make him a champion or something like that. Um, I don't think that he ever made a million dollars in a year in WWE, and I don't think that he's making a million dollars now. I'm sure he's doing well for himself, and I believe that he's making more money independently than he was making in WWE, but not not seven figures.
2: I don't know. I went to HowRich.com the other day, <laughs> and it told me that Luke Harper makes $3 million is his is wealth. And so that seems I, a little high. I, I doubt it. the guy, he just wrestled Jinder Mahal in the main event of SmackDown.
3: Yeah, but he was also on SmackDown in his hometown He couldn't even get on TV.
2: Uh, He probably chose not to be on TV. He knew he'd be more over. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, so there's that question of of how much it is. And I'm sure he's also looping him and Brandy's revenue together. You know, he, he doesn't say that, but if you think about it, his wife also worked for the company, and there's that. I, I don't doubt that if you can get booked every weekend on independent wrestling and get booked for a good amount where they're going to pay your travel and your hotel, you're definitely going to be making more money on uh, deb- off a WWE schedule if you're a low mid-carder, um, and especially someone who probably didn't have a lot of merchandise that was driving up revenue for him. And, yeah. and when you're with the company for WWE, the one thing I will say is for the most part, we do see that. You know, WWE does tend to give people more money year over year. Chavo Guerrero was actually cited in one of the lawsuits as basically, why are you suing us? All we did is pay you more year over year over year. How can you say that you weren't fairly compensated for your time with the company? Uh, And you could argue, you know, by the the late 2000s, 2010s, that Chavo Guerrero really wasn't that important to the company. But the fact that they were still paying him, you know, probably a quarter million dollars or more said a lot about the fact that, you know, they they do tend to just. if has been around around. a long time. Exactly. If they want to keep you around, they tend to give you a little bit of a pay bump, especially around the time you're going to resign your contract if they want you there. Uh, And a guy like Cody, you know, legacy and everything else with him, it it helped a lot. So I, I would imagine he did walk away with at least half a million dollars towards the end of his career there. Uh, but again, he was paying for his own travel. He was paying for his own hotels. He was, you know, he and his wife were both on the road. Uh, it's a, definitely a very different mindset and different life for him right now. And with the the advent of the WWE network, you know, you're not really making that pay-per-view money. And so for these guys that have had contracts for a while, I, I wouldn't be even surprised. So the, the Forbes you know?
3: article that I mean, take it for what it's worth, but this Forbes article that, that I'm sure you've looked at before. Where it lists some of the like the top ten salaries and WWE you got Seth Rollins two million, Randy Orton one point nine million. Uh, it's gonna take forever for me to get through this. So keep talking over me because it's like a slideshow. Well,
2: I, yeah, yeah, but it's that amount to say you know the top guys are there. You got Brock up at the top. You have you know Roman making a lot of money. But but yes, for the most part. I remember when I heard Seth Rollins was making a million dollars, I was incredulous at that idea. AJ Styles and two point four million. You know and and in reality, eh, it seems a little high to me, but uh Ambrose
3: two point seven million
2: it's that logarithmic change from being an indie star where you know if you think about what Kevin Steen was making two years prior to being in w w e and what Kevin Steen makes now as kevin owens it's it's astronomical, I'm sure in his mind uh, the change yeah. there and and it's the same when people say, why does so and so stick around? they could be doing so much more. You know, that's why a Cesaro is there, even when it's clear that they don't care about him. Yeah, Roman Reigns, uh, $3.5 Yeah, so it's 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 interesting to me. What do you Are you changing any predictions on your Cody Okada matchup?
3: No, did you read The Observer? I think I pasted it in here, yeah. The title versus title also brings up a lot of questions regarding the finish. A double count-out, the usual historical finish for this type of match, would be a disaster live, as would a DQ on either man. <laughs> so, Nonsense. no. No, they... If the people, I don't know if they'll riot, but they will be, you know, they will be pissed if, uh, if there's a double count out finish or a DQ finish. And that would would, Bar- da- and it would damage New Japan's business in the future in the U.S.
2: Okada brings out a barbed wire flaming bat. Yeah. Ed Sushi Anita appears on the balcony. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a double count out. It's going to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it.
3: Poison Sawada, whatever his name was, will be there somehow.
2: Oh, yes. Misawa. I think yeah, I'm gonna have yeah. to subscribe
3: to Sling to watch this. I've, I've kind of decided I'm not gonna do it until Saturday, I guess. But I'm gonna have to get Sling. I think it's Orange, the Orange package or whatever, and you get you get Access and El so I'll be able to watch uh, the New Japan on Access and then Lucha Underground if I want to as well.
2: Do you not watch Lucha Underground now?
3: I haven't watched in a while. Um, say I think.
2: Uh, Vinny's going to be very sad about that uh, here. You know, one funny. of your biggest supporters <laughs> out there.
3: I'm going to catch up, up on it as soon as I'm done with this podcast.
2: What do you think about that with the, the, the underground guys that basically, you know, that would be the one fear, I think, for a lot of people with, with a kind of a union contract is like kind of a situation, kind of like getting a TV deal like they have now where suddenly you sign a deal and then you're stuck for years and years and years. Uh, due to its kind of not-so-great language that, you know, people said, oh, this is normal TV language, but it's terrible wrestler language.
3: because yeah, it's, ex- it's exclusive. I mean, imagine signing an actor to a deal where, oh, you can, you're going to appear on our show, but you can only appear on our show, and we, we might do two or three seasons, and then we might just hang out for a couple of years and then maybe do another season after that. But, but in the meantime, you can't work for this, 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 this company.
2: Well, and also when you're on other shows, you know, hey, I record this. It's going to be in the can for a while, and then it will get released, and who knows when that is. And, you know, you can keep working. You can keep getting paid, but you're not you're not as so focused on the idea of being my product is instantaneous and has to be viewed by a live audience.
3: Yeah. Wrestling was kind of like that back in the day in that there was a longer lag uh, between TV tapings, and, and Impact is still like that. They tape TV what once a month and then air it for a month. But this is much longer. The point that you're making is that it's like three months or something like that, or I think it was almost a year between the time that they take some of the season three stuff and the time that it's airing.
2: Well, and just the idea, too, that this is like – this is signing to El Ray instead of signing to USA Network with your show and then being bound to those terms. And that, that can – that's the destructive part about it is it's not like they signed to WWE and then they're stuck in developmental for two years and they don't get to show themselves. They signed to a very small company for not incredible amounts of money, and now they're losing some of their prime years, and they're not able to get contracts with the biggest companies in the world that do what they do because yeah. there's, you know, there's not even a real house show model that's developed here for Lucha Underground or anything.
3: Which there should be, I think, but that's another story. Um, do you think there's any legal standing th- these wrestlers would have if El Ray doesn't? tape another season of Lucha Underground for, like, a couple years but doesn't release them all from their contracts? Would they have some sort of legal standing to, you know, get released voluntarily? Yes. So (laughs) it sounds like the Daniel Bryan thing where they were just going to hold him over.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the Daniel Bryan thing is a little bit more extreme. But I I think in this case it would be more of that – I think someone will test the waters by testing the waters. You know, someone will go out there and just start doing something similar to what's happening on TNA right now where they have Lucha Underground people appearing on their Slammiversary show. Happy Slammiversary, baby. And, uh, you know, if someone says, hey, that's not legal, then that's a thing. You know, then you learn, okay, that's not legal. But I think a lot of it will just come from the fact that a lot of people are not going to bother to enforce a a contract because what exactly is the upside to them trying to litigate this, Uh, especially if they don't have an upside for where they're going with their direction with this company.
3: So if we see Penta, is he still called Pentagon Jr. on Lucha Underground? I haven't been watching, so I don't know. But anyway, if we see Penta Zero Zero, M M or whatever he's calling himself, if we see him show up on uh, Impact Wrestling,
2: well, I'm hoping we, we get, like, a who's under the mask scenario hmm. where the guy will just say, that's not me. You know, That, that they're wearing a mask. Who can prove that's me? Right. And uh, <laughs> to say, it happens to be another guy with the same name. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> and, uh, you know, just kind of use the identical twin scenario. And in, in itself, that would make a great wrestling sitcom, which, which I should be pitching right now to WWE Network. But, yeah, so it will be interesting to see. What exactly are the ramifications here? And it doesn't sound like these people are starving for the most part. Uh, I think some might have buyer's remorse. Um, And and there are times, you know, where you'd say, hey, wouldn't it be great if John Morrison could get back on WWE TV? He seems like he would be a great opponent for blank. And if there was ever a time to be that kind of nostalgia act that can still go, but maybe has a couple more years of tenure in them, this is the time. You know, the Hardys proved that. Uh, what's happening with The Miz now, like people said, w- Morrison would be a great kind of addition, opponent, foe, whatever you want to say to him at this point. So we'll see. Um, it will be interesting if there's you know, actual finality to this legal situation. But it, it says a lot to me about the, the challenges of applying a television mindset to a wrestling business. Yeah. And the Brian the Danielson uh, subject, like you, you said, we didn't uh, put it on our list for this week, but, you know, there's that big question of, do you think he'll wrestle again? What is your thought?
3: So, so Brian Danielson, or Daniel Bryan, put, after I think Cody won the Ring of Honor title, he made some tweet saying that, you know, maybe in 2018, you and I will have a match for the Ring of Honor title, because, of course, Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson is a former Ring of Honor champion. Um, I think he will wrestle when, he's, when his contract is up, and his contract goes up like, sometime in
2: 2018, right? So. I think you don't think it's going to be a Morrow situation where they just dangle some money back in front of him and, you know, his wife says to him, look, I don't want you to go be, you know, be a wrestler again. And uh, maybe you can find I some think, other thing to do his, with your life.
3: If his wife was that against it or had convinced him not to do it, I think I wouldn't think he would be making tweets like that. Um,
2: oh, you are not a married <laughs> man. I am,
3: I, am, I am not.
2: I was going to say, the, the only two places in this world that I think I go where, where my wife does not – somehow have an idea what I'm doing is what I say on my wrestling podcast and what I say on my wrestling Twitter. Those are the the two areas that (laughs) kind of fly under the radar
3: these days. Those waters are too deep and treacherous to be weighted. Um, But that's what I think. I think he's, I don't think he's making it sound like he's going to do something if, if, I'm not saying that Bree's not against it, but that he's not convinced to not do it.
2: he wants to do it. He wants yeah. to do it. I, I, I do think it's in WWE's interest to pay him not to do it.
3: Yeah, and I, but, I, guys, I, but I don't think Daniel Bryan cares about money enough for money to you know, persuade him not to wrestle.
2: But I, I think this leverage with his wife is bigger than you <laughs> than might imagine. The, yeah. the idea of saying, I'm giving you stability to your entire existence, <laughs> and your wife is an alumni, and she's, she's going to be part of the family.
3: Are they they don't have know. stability already. They live in a small house. They, they probably both make a million dollars a year and, and they're both in a seven-figure situation probably. So, like, at, at what, I don't know. This is my view on, on life, I guess. Like, at what point do you need more money than, than what you've
2: got? You know, you are not going to do very well on Shark Tank. <laughs> uh, Mark Cuban will not be interested in your pitch. Mm. But, uh, no, I, I, you're right. There, there's, he, he's, he's one in a million and he cares a lot about being the best at what he does, and he is very sad that he cannot do what he does. I do think he had a honest-to-God realization by the time he gave it up, and I think that kind of, I think in a certain way that resonated with him at that moment, and I think at times you can find yourself distant from those kind of changes where you say, wow, that's how I felt then, here's how I feel now. I think when push comes to shove, I, I'm still. I, I have my two bets. You know, my my first bet is CM Punk back in the WWE ring within a decade of when he lost. My second bet, we'll start it now, is uh, Brian Danielson re-signs with WWE uh, next year and continues on as a personality and does not end up in CMLL and New Japan and Ring of Honor and every other place under the PWG.
3: What, what are we uh, wagering?
2: We we are wagering. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> um, uh, let's see here. Uh, not my Warpath figure. I know. Um. Uh, that's too valuable for right. me to to put up here. Uh, not my RPW tape where the Amazing Technicolor Dreamboats take on the Olsen Twins. No, it can't be against the Olsen Twins. Taking on the Rock City Wrecking Crew, I think it is. I think uh, that's particular. what it that is, yeah. That yeah, in you know, a ladder match. N- not that RPW tape, that uh, Best of RPW Volume 1 on VHS. Uh gosh, I don't I don't know your interests, Brandon. Well, <laughs> have to be able to say are my Star Wars muppet figurines going to be enough? Are my uh yeah. What is it? My my classic Nintendo collection? I don't know what it is that a a a purist like you. My shake weight that I have in the room right now?
3: I don't know, man. I'm just all wrestling all the time and I I train 3-4 days a week at pro wrestling and I do wrestling things during during the day uh for the most part and I do wrestling things right now at night, so if, I don't know, man. You, you got, and that's that's the thing when you're like Daniel Bryan, like you just don't really care about material things. And like I don't know what you're gonna get to persuade me here, but we can try.
2: Well, you know what? I think it should be a beard-related uh, a wager of some sort. Seeing as is Bryan Daniel. Maybe a
3: neck beard shaving kit.
2: <laughs> maybe maybe a very nice razor, uh, yeah. which uh, I or or a, a subscription to Dollar Shave Club, one of the yeah. finest shave clubs you can get in all of wrestling podcasts.
3: Only if they pay us first.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's it. If, uh, if Brian Danielson comes, uh, re-signs with WWE, Dollar Shave Club must sponsor this podcast. If he does not, they must sponsor this podcast, but all the money goes directly to Brandon. Okay. We'll wager our future uh, advertising dollars. We'll, we'll WWE this, and if, if we do not get the Dollar Shave Club uh, sponsorship within a year from now, I will let you put me in a hammerlock.
3: Okay, and and all the money will be online anyway if if we don't really win it, so it's all right.
2: Well, it'll be in bitcoins and and yeah. L- Elysium and all yeah. through things else. Yeah. Uh, did you know you could own world championship wrestling? World class. World we'll, Generally- class. I saw something about that. Tell me about it. Well, just a guy Anton Leon- Leonov, which sounds like a like an old school wrestling heel manager, but it's actually the guy who apparently runs the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame Nonprofit Corporation of Texas in Wichita Wichita Falls. He wants to trademark uh, the old trademarks were canceled in 1991 and 2003, respectively. And in 2007 is when they put out the Triumph and Tragedy of World Class Championship Wrestling DVD. And uh, he's attempting basically to trademark tops, bottoms, hats, toys, and action figures uh, and it's, it's kind of unclear right now whether WWE can stop them. Obviously, they own the library footage, and they can argue that they're using the footage right now. And so the logo of WCCW is definitely being used in entertainment service. What is not clear and uh, goes with this is essentially the question of can another company make T-shirts with WCCW if WWE is not using that image in that space? And uh, it's kind of, I don't know if anyone's given me a straight answer. They basically, my, my, my view is probably they, WWE can oppose the trademark application from being registered by arguing that they're using it right now, much in the way anyone else can oppose any other registration if they can argue they're using it. And that's kind of when we talk about prior use, where someone will say, well, wasn't so-and-so using that name on the indies? How can WWE trademark it? The argument would be that's when they would oppose. They would then say, hey, here's my prior use. Here's the reason why you can't trademark that. Or where you would say something like, hey, my name's Jack Swagger. I already play the guitar. I've already registered entertainment services for the name Jack Swagger. And that's why Jack Swagger can't get his own entertainment services trademark. And sometimes the trademark office themselves will come out and just say, we found another trademark that looks like this. If you're trying to argue something kind of more obscure, like, hey, I use this trademark, but I never registered it, then you really have to kind of contend yourself. So it'll be interesting to see if this goes through, just because it's one of those things where you wonder what's the market for it. I guess if you're trying to find a market for WCCW merchandise, having a Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in Texas is probably the best place for it. Yeah,
3: like that's what this guy wants to do. He wants to sell merchandise probably at his – this is another Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame.
2: I know. I was kind of shocked. I opened it up. And the first picture was Mick Foley, Susan Green, and, like, Pedro Morales or something else, like, hanging out there uh, uh, at this Hall of Fame. So it's yet another one. Do
3: all those people Uh, have some sort of affiliation with Texas, especially? uh,
2: Susan Green – I mean, I think all of them worked in Texas at some point. (laughs) Um, uh, I don't know whether, you know, like – you know, like Mick Foley obviously was not, you know, legendary for his Texas run, but uh, at the same point – uh, and he's from Truth and
3: Consequences, New Mexico, not Texas.
2: Yeah, but I mean, he, he did have a feud with Gentleman Chris Adams, I I think, uh, while he was down there. Maybe that was Steve Austin. Or I'm the, of.
3: Some early part of his career probably happened in yeah, yeah. World Class, didn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and so, but at the same time, it's called a Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, so I think it's another one of these where okay. it's very generally just trying to find pro wrestlers and, that they and can. And Sue
3: Green was born in Texas.
2: Yes, so it it, you know, it struck me just interesting. That this was happening. Uh, what other things have you been working on for uh, uh, wrestling here? Um, when you're thinking about, let's see here, Sky Sports. I thought this was interesting. Sports.
3: There. Yeah. Are, so look. So the way I understand it, this is Sky Sports. This is the UK. This is the channel in the UK that WB airs on. The Sky is this big network of, of TV channels, cable TV channels, as I understand right, and. Uh, they're, what they're going to do is – so there's Sky Sports, and they're going to break up Sky Sports into a number of separate channels. And uh, so such and such channel is going to air the football, and this channel is going to air that. And then Sp- Sky Sports Arena is going to be what airs the wrestling and a few other sports.
2: So first of all, let me apologize for Brandon's uh, gross characterization of the U.K. marketplace. <laughs> uh, I believe it's a satellite channel. I is it not satellite? It is. Did
3: they not have cable in the U.K.? What's going on?
2: I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Will Will Cooling is fuming at this point yeah. uh, because cause he was – no, he was just saying to me that, like, he would he, he would be very happy to be a, a guest on the show. Mm-hmm. And I was saying he yeah, would be a great sure. guest on the show. Sure. He just did a, a very nice appearance on, on Wrestling Observer. And so I think that's the challenge is it is a little hard to – we like to compare the U.K. market to the U.S. market, and we think of it very much in the same terms. I believe it is more of a satellite mm-hmm. channel or a satellite service. Um you are right that they are splitting this up, and it's interesting, because it basically suggests, uh, as I was saying in the comments section of Will's appearance on WRestling Observer Live," I was saying, here's how much they've been spending on television rights in the U.K. And you know, they're up to 20-plus million dollars in what they're spending every year on WWE television rights. And from a, a share of audience, I get, it's just a couple hundred thousand viewers because it's not the best tier, it's not the best time slot, it's not the best anything. And so there is that question of uh, would Sky essentially look at it and say this is not worth our time and effort because WWE and Sky, which have traditionally been partners together for many years and was facing kind of a, a big sports right play against BT Sports uh, during, I think, the last uh, negotiation period where the, there was a big fight, you know, kind of uh, that's what drove the price up by so much, was the fact that Sky essentially did not want them to watch the WWE Network. That's one reason why the WWE Network was not available in the U.K. for for a while and why it kept being delayed. And they tried to push their pay-per-views, which they bought the rights to, and then immediately WWE basically cut the legs out from under them because WWE announced the Sky deal in, like, December of 2013 or January of 2013 and then announced the Network, like, a month later. So it was, like, it very much, like, was a thumb in the eye to them. Uh, when they realized that they were not going to be able to really profit off these pay-per-views anywhere as much as they kind of thought they would. And by the end of the U.K. deal, it will actually be worth less than the India deal. So it will be interesting to see whether or not um, the U.K. Sky Sports really wants to pay that much. And in addition, as some people have pointed out, with Brexit going on, uh, uh, the pound is probably going to weaken against the dollar. And as far as I know, all these deals are written in dollars. The deal that we saw for Thailand was written in dollar. The deal we saw for the Philippines was written in dollars. All the deals I've ever seen have been written in U.S. dollars because that's how WWE can guarantee what they're going to get yeah. when they say, we think we're going to get $185 million next in year. In fact, before. you confirmed so, that,
3: didn't you, that, that the contracts are in U.S. dollars? That's something we followed after Brexit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've seen – that's everything I've ever seen. So I, I don't know for a fact – maybe I did get that. I, I thought you writing. got that on the record. You're right. I did write – I wrote a whole article about Brexit. <laughs> yeah. Good God. What do I do all day? Yeah, so – yeah, you're right. I did actually get that confirmed one time. I forgot about that. So yeah. that goes to show you what happens when they pay you a, a lump sum for your articles <laughs> rather than uh, you actually being invested in how they turn out. Tell me uh, Tell me about GLOW. Have you been watching?
3: I haven't. I think you have, though.
2: I, I did start it. I loved it. I, I liked it a lot. It's uh, – I I think it's. it's – again, one of these things where you're just like, wow, the the evolution of Netflix, and even, you know, it, it, it's almost that thumb to the eye to the WWE to say, you know, we tell stories about wrestling, and then have Netflix be like, let me show you how we tell a story about wrestling, and just how different it, it can feel, and it's been, and I think they did a great job with the, the casting, with the operations of it, um, even the wrestling side of things, it hasn't been hmm. infuriating. I You know, I think it's one of these cases where it's a really good story and it's about a show called glow, whether or not it bears a lot of resemblance to what glow was or the backstory of glow is irrelevant. And once you can get past that, I think it's great. Yeah. Um, you know, it'd be kind of like having a show called world championship wrestling, but it's not really about WCW beyond the idea. Of these are the archetypes that happened in WCW.
3: And, and to be cynical, this is not something that I think WWE would ever do because they would have to be acknowledging this property that that wasn't Vince McMahon's creation. It's just, it's a place that they're never going to go, and where it's it, – if they're going to do something, they're going to glorify, a, a, you know, Vince McMahon in a biopic about him, or they're going to do something about their own talent, like they're doing the Page movie.
2: True, but, I, I mean, you, would, you could argue even that DVD I mentioned, The Triumph and tri- 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 Tragedy of World-Class Wrestling, World Championship-Class Wrestling. You know, things yeah. like that. There have been examples. And they, they said, own the – Let's look at yeah. another Fed. Let's look at another thing. And there's no reason they couldn't yeah. own the and that, that's And that's you
3: know. a documentary. Um, yeah. But, yeah. And uh, somebody I was talking to the other day was you know, pointed out. You know, and we're talking about the Benoit thing. You know, if, if anybody could do or has the footage and and the, and the people on hand to be talking heads to do a, a really interesting Benoit documentary, it's WWE. Um, but they're never going to do it because they're, they're never going to shine a light on that ever again.
2: Yeah. I mean, the Andre documentary that they've continuously promised here, it's probably the closest we're going to get to the idea of saying, what would happen if you took a, a serious sports journalist and let them harness WWE's workshoot environment, you know, to give us, like, an idea of what – because I'm sure the footage they're going to have of Andre with WWE's cooperation is going to be incredible. Just think about all the territories he worked in, all the places he's been, and then all the footage you could harness for this.
3: They won't have anybody in Houston, though, but they'll have a lot of other stuff.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, who knows if even Billy Corgan is going to get NWA Houston? I
3: think they uh, are. Think he... They are getting it. I think that's what's going well, on. Well,
2: wasn't the latest thing that uh, it all got hooked up at the last second, where where the deal was not going through with Corgan and Tharp and all that?
3: I think they got it straightened out. I I I took a, I, I have a I have a note telling telling me what what exactly the, the latest is, but I, I don't have it on hand, and I'm not able to roam about the apartment like you are.
2: The last thing I remember hearing about it was that Tharp basically let the NWA trademark lapse by not renewing it. And uh, when he tried to renew it, because uh, I, I followed up on this myself uh, uh, looking at it, basically he was trying to renew it in two categories at once, like basically for merchandise and for entertainment services at the same time. And they basically came back and said, no, we're not going to let you renew it. And he then basically petitioned to split split it into two pieces so that he could try to sell off one of these trademarks, basically, with before if he can't get the other one. And so it was a whole kind of debacle where they, some were saying, you know, maybe this was going to really follow up the ability to sell all the rights to Corgan because some of the IP he was basically not an ownership of. I,
3: I think the issue was there's a dispute between uh, Tharp and and the widow of Paul Bosch and that Tharp owns the physical or possesses the physical tapes, but the fan, the Bosch family is making a claim on, on the ownership of them. So, so it's a question of whether or not Tharp, it, whether or not that property is actually Tharp's to sell to Corgan.
2: Well, I think there's two different things we're talking about here. Oh, I'm talking okay. about the trademark status of NWA as a whole, okay, the National Wrestling Alliance. And what there, what there was a very long article. I actually uh, posted a, a, a quote from the, um, the, like, 50-page filing that Tharp made. And basically there's an argument over whether NWA, the rap group, has the monopoly on the NWA letters in such a way that they can't go and register NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. And so there's a whole deal going on about that with the Trademark Office Really? Uh, right now. Wow. In addition, I think you're right that he never owned the tapes of NWA Houston. So, he so was who, basically, who
3: owns the NWA, the rap uh, band name or Oh group name?
2: Uh, probably the the music, uh, uh, whichever music label they are signed to, okay. has the official. I mean, it refers to it as Easy E's, so it's possible that at some point Easy E actually was the one that would go out and trademark it. But I think right now it's owned probably by you know Def Jam or whoever Interscope or whoever it was that that actually signed it all up. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm showing my ignorance here, but just the fact that they just did the movie and all the other releases right now, I'm sure. At that moment, they went through and basically secured every piece of intellectual property dealing with NWA at that time. And so you're right that um, the the Bosch family owns the tapes, had basically told Tharp to be the executor of the licensing here with getting this footage up. But in no way did he have the rights to it. And so he can't sell those to Corgan. And then whether or not Corgan made a deal for it or what he did – you know, it's all third, secondhand stuff, but like I say, the trademark stuff at the very least, I can go to the trademark office. You can. It's USPTO.gov. You can type in these letters. You can look to see who registered it. You can look at the correspondence. You can even look at the long filings and the usage. And you can see the pictures from Facebook of Bruce Tharp wearing a pink NWA uh, embroidered polo shirt as his proof of use of, of the NWA name. So it's pretty interesting. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. It's it's one of those tweet times where I was actually being really interesting on Twitter, and absolutely no one noticed. <laughs> so it was kind of fun. Yeah.
3: All right. What else do we want to talk about here?
2: I don't have a lot else. Uh, you know, Global Force is now owned by Impact. Yeah. I have to say, thank God. I, I was I was in the bidding for a while there, and it just yeah. didn't work out. Do you, you know? still do the I, loot crate? Uh, no, I did cancel. I've been oh. on a on – a, I've been on a savings spree lately. Oh, you you missed out.
3: You may have missed out on ownership of Global Force Wrestling.
2: It was just in the bottom of the crate one week?
3: It it might have gone to your house, and instead it went to the the house of Anthem, whatever their full corporation name is.
2: Jeez, and that that means they even had to cross over to Canada. Yeah. Did I tell you, like, where my new office is in Canada that I go visit for work? No. we are right down the street from the fight network. Oh, wow. and I have been very tempted because sometimes I, I I don't even get a car. I just go to the hotel and I walk to the office. It's about maybe oh, point one point two kilometers, let's say I'm in Canada. I'm adjusting. <laughs> okay. uh, no, it's more like three kilometers uh, and and but I'm always tempted to like just go and knock on the door and just like see who I would meet, yeah. and who I could talk to if I went there. But the other half of me is like, yeah, that's the kind of situation that gets you arrested in another country. Just just <laughs> like, go you know, in there
3: and say you're a member of the media. You want to see if you can get an interview with Ed Nordholm.
2: There we go. See, that's the thing. is, like I if I was in the U.S., absolutely. But I'm in Canada, and so there's always that element of me being like I don't want to get myself in trouble with the authorities while I'm in Canada. Yeah, you, you don't, really don't
3: want to get arrested and then get banned from the country.
2: I don't, and I want to. I don't want to Nakamura it and just mysteriously not be allowed to cross the border. Yeah, uh, like you and I talked two weeks about? ago.
3: Nobody's yeah, explained that,
2: and, and, and every me.
3: every like you know news aggregator site that didn't look that deeply into it, um, they just said, well, it, and, and that's what they announced at the show. They had General Hall cut a promo, I guess, where he said that Nakamura couldn't get into the country. This, we're talking about a house show that happened in Vancouver, where. Uh, Nakamura was advertised but did not appear, but then appeared the next night, I think, in, in Washington State in Seattle or something. or uh,
2: Spokane. Spokane.
3: There you go. So, I mean, and Nakamura has wrestled fairly recently, I think probably for Ring of Honor in Toronto. And as we mentioned last week, it, it wouldn't even matter. You, would, you wouldn't you would need a working permit to, to be a wrestler and to wrestle in Vancouver or anywhere in Canada. Because as we looked at, uh, as I was, I was telling the story last time, and, and I found the the page on whatever the whatever the equivalent of the Border Patrol is for Canada where it explains that you don't need a work permit if you're a WWE wrestler. Like it says that in plain language, it names if you're a WWE wrestler or similar organizations. So you should be yeah, able to just walk right into Canada and be like, hey, hey, Border Patrol, I'm here to wrestle and maybe show some documentation that proves that and then go on and wrestle. But, but maybe they like stopped it. him and maybe he had an accent and they, they interrogated him and said, no, you're not coming over or something. Maybe you didn't have enough stuff to convince them or something.
2: Well, and it's, you know, he was on the NXT tours for a while there, which meant he was driving to some podunk areas to go do shows. So it's not like you would say, oh, he's too, you know, above driving to this place or that place to go do a show. Uh, The only other, like, explanation I can come up with would be, like, unbelievably convoluted where I'd say, well, what if he's still on an old NXT contract and so he doesn't have a special working visa that allows him to go to Canada when he's part of NXT because he wasn't part of the original you know, come up with some crazy thing. But he tours internationally all the time. Yeah. And you I, and you
3: don't need a work visa no matter, I think, what citizenship you well,
2: have. Well, yeah, maybe that's true. I don't know. I don't know. So uh, I, I would have walked into the fight office and demanded to know where Nakamura was, and it wouldn't have gone very well.
3: <laughs> maybe Nakamura committed a crime last time he was in Canada. He got banned. Maybe maybe that's what he did. Maybe he walked up to – maybe when he was in Toronto last time, maybe he walked up to the, uh, the, the Fight Network office and demanded <laughs> to speak with <laughs> – at Norholm, and they said, well, what's going on here? You're arrested. You're banned from the country. And that's why he's not Russell Jinder Mahal in uh, Vancouver, maybe.
2: Lastly, l- l- let's talk about Fox Sports and the Nielsen out-of-home rating system.
3: Yeah. Uh, so
2: it is this basically when the television's on at the gym?
3: Yeah, it, or uh, maybe bars and things like that. Wherever you can think of where a TV, I guess, would be in public, they want to start counting that. And that makes sense that you would want to start counting that. But the, this is a, a short article that's in—is that, it Sports Business Journal? It is Sports Business Daily, um, where, where Fox is talking about how they're including the out-of-home viewing now, and they added it into to last year's NFL regular season numbers, and the rating jumped by 16% in adults in the 18 to 49 demographic. And Fox also said that the NFL's out-of-home viewing ratings attract a younger, more diverse, more female, and more affluent audience than traditional tv and you made the point well of course it's going to be higher because you're including a, a larger you know including larger population is that the right way to say it
2: yeah well it, it's basically saying you know what if i call count all the people named mitch in the united states now what if i include <laughs> mitchell's what if i include guys named nick and it's just like of course it's a bigger number right. now in terms of uh, percentage of people yeah it, it does make some sense to but say isn't sports. this like
3: what they're trying to say to advertisers is say, hey look there were there were more people watching than we told you before
2: and yeah and it, we don't have a baseline data is my biggest problem with it which is to say a year ago do i really know that more or less people were going to bars to watch things you know like based on the only person i know who who counts bar attendance in ratings is dave Meltzer when a ronda rousey fight is going on that's right and so it, it's hard to say what is up or down year over year without you know that sort of index but uh, uh, sure maybe that makes you happy to try to explain away why your ratings are down for the year to say everybody's at the gym in a bar now but i i i kind of think of it as it's just another way of trying to capture a number to make it look bigger next thing you know it's going to be instead of who watched for more than a minute it's going to be who watched for 30 seconds what were you writing here about this pirated audio in the nielsen audio this is fascinating
3: <laughs> so I, I i learned some information the other day about uh how Nielsen collects its, its viewership data. Um, so one thing that we talk about a lot is, well, oh, you know, WWE's ratings are down, but, you know, maybe an unknown number of people are watching on Hulu and unknown people are number of, well, a lot of people are watching these YouTube clips for whatever that's worth and whatever that means. Um, so, but what I found out is that, I and mean, we, we've heard people talk in the past about how, well, you know, pretty soon Nielsen's going to start counting Hulu and it's going to start counting Netflix and it's going to start counting maybe things like Sling. And so what I found out is Nielsen is already counting live viewership that's on a television when you watch through live Hulu or when you watch through live Sling. So the live and same-day ratings that that we see, which are the the ratings that are reported by Wrestling News websites the next day after Raw or the next day after SmackDown, that's the live and same-day rating. Those ratings will already be including any live viewership that happened on Hulu or any live viewership that happened uh, on Sling. Now, most people, I think, who are watching WWE through Hulu are not watching it on the on the live version of Hulu that I think just rolled out maybe like six months ago. I think most people are watching Hulu on, you know, the next day when it's available yeah. on, on video on demand. Um, and, and by the way, the reason why Nielsen catches that stuff is because w- within the programming, I think periodically uh, – Inaudible to, to a regular viewer, it iterates it some sort of code that the Nielsen, whatever device is attached to your TV uh, to count your viewership, it, it picks that up. So that's that's included obviously on the USA Network feed and it's also included on the Hulu feed and on the Sling feed. Um, so it knows when you're watching that stuff when you're watching it live. And I think if you say you watch it the, the next day on Hulu, it would your TV would pick up that signal again, but by that time, if you're watching it the next day you would be counted as, like, DVR plus one or plus three or, or however they count it. So, and so as you're saying, there's something here about pirated video. So I think even if somehow, I'm not saying this, I'm not at all saying this happens often, but if somehow, even if you took, your, say, your laptop and you went to a pirate, you know, wrestling video site and you plugged it in via HDMI into your TV and you you played that video of, of let's say, RAW, and if it was a, a rip from the USA Network, your TV and your your Nielsen device would pick up the code that's embedded in the in the usa broadcast and it would count that as as some sort of viewership i think um if again you're, you're obviously not watching it live unless you've got like a live stream of, you know like an illegal live stream of usa network um, but it's probably not counting things like youtube clips because the youtube clips are are probably produced directly from wwe and they don't go through the usa network and i understand it's the USA network. It's the TV networks that embed this code that Nielsen recognizes.
2: And that's that's why they've also said that Netflix would be tough for them to monitor. Is basically Netflix doesn't want them to monitor it. Netflix doesn't want people to know what they know about yeah. who's watching what. Um, it's fascinating. And did I ever tell you I was a Nielsen home? I don't think
3: so. Maybe you did. I don't know. But but tell me again because I don't remember. Probably. No.
2: Th- that's a lie. <laughs> it's not. But but <laughs> I was not I was an Arbitron home, oh. and I had what was called a people meter, oh. and it was kind of like a pager, and the idea was I would wear this little pager on like my belt or carry okay. it in, like my pocket. Yeah, wow. and it would it would track because Arbitron is really more for radio. They got into the television business, but they they were always the radio station. I, I
3: think I did Arbitron once too, but it wasn't like that. But go on, yeah.
2: Yeah. So we would wear this like little pager and then it would listen to what – and exactly like you said there, every time I watched television, they would say, oh, there's a special code that's being broadcast that the, the pager can pick up what it is you're watching. And then you know, it tries to figure out – Yeah, I think it would also try to figure out if my wife, who also had one, we were in the same room. So it would, that's how it could tell how many people were there oh, okay. was the pagers would talk to each other to be like, hey, you're here too. And um, we would get all these angry emails from them being, like, you haven't worn your pager enough in the last – because it also had, like, a um, – it had a motion thing on it. So it was, like, you can't just take it off and put it on the table and then turn on the television. It has to be in motion for it to know. And so at one point oh, I, like, rigged So, up like, if you motion. fall
3: asleep, they know that you're not really watching. Maybe i go on.
2: Well, they said basically, like, the motion of, like, your body – should be enough like you're breathing in and out but like being on a table stationary would not be enough and so i remember at one time i rigged up a whole thing where like i had the ceiling fan and the window blinds and my dog all moving my 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 people meter in such a way so that i could like turn on a television show (laughs) and uh it did not work but uh I, I'm, I'm actually really curious, but they would pay us like some in infinitesimal amount of money and then send us angry emails all the time about how we weren't doing a good enough job. Yeah, it's like 5 and or so 20 like,
3: bucks or something like that, right?
2: Yeah, and so I just gave up. Years ago, I did Arbitron where it was just like writes down in a log what you listen to. But yeah. this was like the first I, time – I did something that was like,
3: like a little brochure or something. They wanted to know what terrestrial radio you, you listen to.
2: hmm Yeah. But yeah, this was probably 06, 07, like almost a decade ago. But yeah. It was when Arbitron was trying to get into the TV – the the ratings game. Uh, so it was it was interesting. And so it's very similar. You know, the technology has been out there. It's been argued that this kind of technology is going to be better for inclu- including different demographics and things like that or, or a wider spectrum of shows that people are watching. And like you say, if the codes are in there, then it's a great way for them to count all that. But um, – And I I think Uh, this stuff will become
3: more significant as time goes on because I think as time goes on, we're going to have more people watching live through Hulu and live through Sling. I'm I'm guessing that's something that's going to be more popular in the future, and it's just just a few people are doing it right now.
2: Yeah. So it it will be fascinating. So if you are secretly a a Nielsen uh, family and you want to correct us, please uh, email us at uh, indeedwrestling at com. You can email me at chris.herrington at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at mukigana. Gana. Uh, brandon, how can the, the, the legions of fans contact you?
3: You can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. You could email me if you wanted to uh, at brandon at flightful.com. Uh, as, as always, you can go to fightful.com and read the things that I've written. As I mentioned earlier, I I wrote an article on Chris Benoit recently. and uh, The proceeds are going to a, a, a few different charities. And uh, I train people, you can follow uh, Graphs Anonymous on various social media platforms, former underscore Thurston on various social media platforms, if you want to follow Wrestler me.
2: And uh, my ebook uh, about uh, 2000... Coming soon. Which yeah, yeah, it's gonna say, it's, <laughs> it's coming the year 2007, or I was gonna say 2017, but good god it is 2017, it so is. that's not much of a threat, is it? Um, very good. Well, uh, as always, we appreciate your feedback about the shows. Uh, we will try and make the shows more periodic. Uh, I would love for us to start having hosts and guests
3: and we, so we already Brandon have hosts.
2: Has, yeah, that is true. <laughs> that is true. Brandon has offered to step up his game and uh, he's already uh, made, made true on that by taking over the editing duties, taking over the recording duties, taking over all the uh, description of the show duties. So at this point, I have nothing left to do with my life. So yeah. this is good news for you me. S- you just have and to
3: talk. You you are the professor, and I am what <laughs> you're your lowly graduate student. Um,
2: well, you're, you're the one with the philosophy degree, and is that where a decorative drop comes from? Is that a philosophy degree uh, related? to No, it's a Jim Cornette related thing.
3: Sorry, I'm getting uh, to it. Um, All right. It's Another a Jim show. Ross related thing because I told this story elsewhere. Um, there, I think it's the Russell Ward 1990 tag match between Rock and Roll Express and Midnight Express. And of course, Jim Cornette is the manager of the Midnight Express, and Jim Jim Ross is on commentary. And he ma- makes mention of the tennis racket and says that it's um, that's not just a decorative prop. And I I ended up misspelling it when I created my username as, as that. And so just it just I, I it was you couldn't really go back on it. So oh well. And uh, but anyway, this is, if you're wondering what we're talking about. It's just a, a handle online that I use that I no longer.
2: <laughs> well, this
3: is this is Cookie Ghana signing off right now. All right, take it easy. See you. The Wrestleonomics podcast with Chris Harrington, hmm. aka Muki Agamaya. the Warren Howard
1: person, really smart guy, really good at analytical statistics. Here it comes again. Lunch. Will it be the same old, same old?